0: Hello and welcome to the Foundry Church Podcast. My name is Joseph. I'm the worship pastor here at the Foundry Church in Winter Springs, Florida. We're so glad that you found us today, whether you have been with us for a long time or whether you maybe just stumbled across us on the internet, whether you've been a Christian your entire life or whether maybe you're just figuring out and discovering and exploring what a life of faith looks like to you. We're glad that you're here. What you're about to hear is a message from our current sermon series titled, The Head and the Heart. You know, as humans, we experience a wide variety of thoughts and feelings and emotions uh, as we go through life. Joy, anger, doubt, um, happiness, all, all of these things. And one of the amazing things about scripture is that it speaks to these things. And it speaks in such a way that it can penetrate not just our head with knowledge, but our heart with wisdom. And uh, so that's what we're kind of leaning into in this series, uh, talking about what it means to experience the fullness of our humanity uh, as we also experience the presence of the divine. Uh, So we hope you enjoy this message.
1: So my freshman year of college, I was attending Johnson Bible College in Knoxville, Tennessee, the Johnson Bible College. Um... As a freshman, I entered the work-study program, and basically, if you don't know what that is, is you work, you get a job from the school, you work for the school, they pay you a very low hourly rate, um, but you get to stay on campus. They take, like, half of that money goes to your tuition, the other half you get to spend, you know, on whatever you want. So when I first started, somehow I ended up doing computer graphics for the teacher's program, which was kind of a joke, not the program, me doing the computer graphics was the joke. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I began to learn these different programs. And then as I began to learn, what I figured out was I could do this fun stuff with like photographs and images where I could like cut something out of one picture and put it into another picture and make it a whole new thing. So for example, if you went into the student directory, you could cut out the face of one of your friends and then place it onto like the body of a rhinoceros or something. Right? It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun in games. Until one day, uh, the main professor and I were not getting along on some things, not seeing eye to eye. And then somehow, a picture of her face happened to find its way onto the body of a gopher coming out of a hole, which is kind of what she looked like. But somehow, that merged together and then somehow that new photo became the desktop for all of the computers in the student library, somehow. Shortly after that, I somehow found myself on trash sorting duty. This wasn't trash collecting duty, this was trash sorting duty. And the way it worked was, there was this really long conveyor belt that fed an incinerator. And then the trash collector kids, they would come and they would dump all the trash on the the conveyor belt. And then me and a group of other people would sort through all of the trash of the college, pulling out like metals and toxic things that maybe shouldn't go into the incinerator. This was not what I would call one of the finer moments of my life. It was not a highlight. I I was making next to nothing. I was doing a garbage job, like literally. But at least I guess I was in Bible college. Now, what's one of the great things about being a college student? I know there's lots of things. But one of the great things about being a college student who has no money and who's primarily living off a cafeteria food and like ramen noodles, one of the great things is when parents come to visit. When your parents come to visit you and they take you out to dinner. Or when a friend's parents come and they you get to go with them and they take you out to dinner. I remember my sophomore year, my dad came to visit me when I was in Kissimmee, and we went to Rio Bravo, which is where I was working at the time, the Tex-Mex restaurant. I don't even think it exists anymore. And I got like the double steak fajitas, and it was awesome because I got a break from the ramen noodles. One time when I was in Knoxville, uh, my friend's parents came and they took us to, uh, was it uh, Calhoun's or something? It sits right on the river and I got a big fat steak and it was awesome and I remember like what a treat and what a gift that that steak was, finally getting a break from the cafeteria food and the ramen noodles. There was this like deep sense of gratitude for getting to take the night off of ramen. I remember when Jess and I first got married, we moved to Charleston, we got this nice little apartment, like up on the third floor, which was awesome, taking couches into, had a great time with that. We didn't have much to our name, but we had, a, we had our bed, and then we got the couches that we put on a credit card, and then we had a TV, and that was about it. Thankfully, though, with both of us working full time, we upgraded from ramen to like mac and cheese. We, we were getting the good stuff, and so we spent a lot of nights sitting on the couch eating our mac and cheese as feeling like we are young adults, what's great when you're newly married and living in a different town and don't have a lot of things is when your parents show up, (laughs) yeah, your parents show up, My, my parents, her parents would show up and no matter when they came or whatever, there was always, we always got something new. Sometimes it was something small, sometimes it was something more significant, but I remember one time my parents came to visit us in Charleston and apparently, they were too good to sit on the couch to eat their mac and cheese. So they bought us a dining room table <laughs> because we didn't have that. So they bought us this dining room table and the chairs. And I remember thinking, wow, this is, this is incredible. Like we were so grateful for that table and that set. And now we're like real adults. We're like real people or something. And it was an amazing gift that we got to have. When we were first married, we were living in Charleston, and uh, I was working at this very small church, and, and the church people there were, were incredible. They, they just loved us. They adopted us. The, the, the senior minister there, his name's Jerry Thompson, and Jerry is just one of the most heartfelt, loving guys you could ever meet. And he was always looking out for us and taking care of us. He loved um, garage sales, loved garage sales. He loved thrift store shopping. And so he would always be showing up like just out of the blue, like, hey, I was at the the thrift store. I was at the garage sale and I found this and I thought of you. And so I thought you guys could use this. And he was just always pouring out these little gifts for us that we might not have been able to take care of on our own. And all of these things to me, to us, were such an incredible blessing. They were such an incredible gift. Now, Things are a little bit different for me and my wife and our family now. I'm a couple decades beyond college. I'm a, like a decade and a half into our marriage. We've got a lot more stuff now. Some of it's nicer, or at least it used to be nice till we had kids, now it's, now it's just stuff. It's just, it's just stuff. And, and now, I make like at least three times now, three times as much now as I used to make 22 years ago sorting trash. So I feel like I'm in a way better place than I used to be. We've moved forward a little bit. And now we're at a place where if we want something, we don't have to rely on our parents to get us something new. I don't have to rely on others. Like, I I can just, I can kind of go buy what I want. As long as it's something, not not something major, like I'm not going to go buy a car or like something big, but I can kind of just kind of just buy what I want, right? Like the other day, uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about, we were talking about the monarchs and how the monarchs were put on the endangered species list. And I thought, man, I should really go get some milkweed and plant some milkweed around my yard and like help with that whole thing. And uh, I was at the store and I came across a little pot of milkweed. And there was like three or four stems. And I was like... Ooh, I could take this, and I could separate these, and I could put them on my yard. And how much is it? Oh, it's eight bucks. And then I was like, If it's eight bucks, I'm gonna get two. I'm gonna get two. Look at me go! I don't even care. I'm not even gonna look at the financial implications of this decision. I'm just gonna buy it, right? Like we've moved forward. We've progressed. That's in college. I wouldn't have been spent sixteen bucks on plants because that would have been like all my money for the next two weeks, right? Like we we've moved forward. Things are a little bit differently. Things are a bit different. And so, and so what can happen is that if we're not careful, as we move forward through life, as we gain, as we acquire, as we accumulate, we tend to get more stuff and more things. But the danger is, as we gain these things, there's this potential for us to lose something along the way. There's this possibility that we might lose this sense of overwhelming gratitude that we had with those earlier experiences. It's possible that we lose this awareness that everything we have is a gift. It's like if we're not careful, our success can actually become a barrier to our gratitude. Like you can get everything you want and then still discover that like, you're missing something. And the thing that you're missing is the thing that you actually had before when you had nothing that sense of gratitude, that sense, that idea, that understanding that, man, even this steak that my dad bought me, this thing is such a gift. This, this, this table and chairs, this is such a gift. This, this knick-knack that Jerry thought I needed from the thrift store, I don't know why, but what a gift. Like, it's all such a gift. It's like a couple years ago, uh, when I was a youth minister here for like two minutes, um, we, were able to take a, <laughs> we were able to take a group of high schoolers to Haiti uh, speaking of Haiti, there's a 5K coming up. You should like sign up for it. We're gonna have cool shirts. This this thing, by the way, the 5K, it really is like better you, better world. Because hopefully you're getting in shape and you're like doing something physically active, and then that money goes to support the Lincoln Hokers and Grace Mountain Nutrition Center. It really is a a good thing. So we take these kids to Haiti, and and it was this really great experience. If you've never been on a mission trip, but there was like this continual theme of conversation that I noticed the kids were having. And it seemed to always come back to this idea that they're looking at these people who are living like in this abject poverty according to our standards, but yet what they're seeing is a sense of like contentment and maybe even a bit of joy. Like how are they so much happier when they have next to nothing? We, we have all of our fancy clothes and shoes and phones and computers, and they, some kid brought a, wanted to bring a hair dryer. I'm like, what are you doing? But yet what they notice is the people that they were interacting with who had next to nothing seemed to be happier than they were, more content than they were, despite having so many different things, right? This is like the opposite of what most of our culture seems to think. We seem to think we need to have all this stuff to make us happy. We need to have all these things to give us a sense of joy, and what the kids were confronted with in that moment in Haiti was like the opposite of all of that. It's almost like our success and this building up of the comforts around us can actually become a barrier to our gratitude, and if we're not careful, we lose this understanding, this idea that everything we have is a gift. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, Moses is writing to the people. He's talking. It gets written later. He says this, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, that's like a thing of grain, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. In another place, they tell the people to leave the corner of the fields as they're harvesting. Leave that behind for the orphan, the, the, the immigrant, and the widow. So basically, the people are told, when you go to harvest your field, don't harvest the whole thing. Or if you miss a spot, don't go back and get that. Leave that alone. Think about this from an owner's perspective. Imagine you're the owner in this situation. Like what kind of garbage is that? You own the field. So you're either doing the work or you're paying somebody else. To do the work of planting, of caring for, of harvesting the crop. This is how you make a living. And the more that you can take to market, the better off you're going to be because the more you're going to get paid. So you want to get as much as you possibly can out of the harvest so that you can build up as much reservoir of funds as you can. Right? I, I want to get the most out of this property. I need to harvest as much as possible. And Moses is like, no, 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 you've got to leave some behind. This really isn't fair, is it? This isn't fair to the owner. You've done all the work. They didn't do anything. They didn't earn it. They didn't work for it. I'm not sure that they deserve it, right? Now we're just giving away our product and our profit and our like, we're just giving all of that away? Like, is Moses some sort of socialist? What's next? He's going to forgive college debt? <laughs> Let's not get political, Seth. This isn't fair to the owner of the field, is it? This is how he makes his living. I actually experience this at my house all the time. Almost every morning I get up and I do like some stuff. I, just, I get my coffee, do some prayer, that sort of thing. And then I'll go like walk around the yard and inspect things because that's what guys like to do. We, like to, we just like to survey and inspect. We're like, yep, grass is growing. There it is. So I go out and I like look in my garden and I pull weeds and I water some things and I occasionally fertilize some things, whatever. And so I watch as my trees and my plants like begin to pr- produce fruit and I love it. And I, and I like to watch the process because you'll see it starts with a flower and you're like, ooh, something's coming, something's about to happen. And then that flower will turn into some sort of fruit and then that fruit will begin to ripen. And I'll be watching these things for like, you know, weeks, months at a time waiting for this fruit to develop so that then I get to experience the, the fruits of my labor literally. I get to Taste the harvest, and I'll come home from work one day, and then, like, my fig that I've been watching will be gone because my kids ate it. The mulberries, the figs, the kids just take and eat. And I go, I get home from work, and I'm like, I've been working all day, and I've been in the yard, and where were you for the past three months? You didn't plant the tree, you haven't been out there helping pull the weeds, you haven't been helping fertilize, you're just gonna show up and take my fruit, A little punk. Like, that's not fair. That's that's not fair. Why should someone who hasn't done the hard work that I've done reap the benefits? So Moses says, if you look over a sheaf of grain, leave it. For who? The widows, the orphans, the immigrants. Next verse, verse 20. When you beat the olives from the tree, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. So you have something very similar here again, obviously. Again, imagine you're the owner of the olive grove. You're the owner of the olive grove. This is how you make a living. Do you know it takes at least four years uh, for an olive tree to grow to the point of even being able to harvest anything from it? It takes at least four years of tending and caring and and looking after these trees before you can get a decent harvest. And then the way that you harvest is, it talks about how it says they would beat the olive tree. This is not like just ripping the tree in half, right? They would take a long wooden stick, and yes, they would hit the the branches, but they don't wanna hit it so hard that they're damaging the fruit or damaging the tree. And so it's like this gentle kind of thrashing through the things, and they're going from top all the way down to bottom, and then they're going all the way around the tree. This is a time-consuming process. This is, this is, there's a lot of energy that goes into making this happen. It's physically exhaustive, and this is how you make a living. And so Moses says, don't collect as much as you can, or I want you to leave some behind for others. I want you to leave some of that crop. This is entirely unfair. This is so unfair, Leave some behind for those who are in need. Yeah, but where were they when I planted? Where were they for the past four years that I've been taking care of all of these things? Where were they when we were out in the sun doing all this hard work of harvesting? This is entirely unfair to the landowner. Verse 21, another command. When you harvest the grapes in, in your vineyards, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Again, Entirely unfair. Right? This is like you're noticing this theme here. All of the work that goes into maintaining and harvesting and taking care of a vineyard. And then the landowner is told, don't take as much of the crop as you possibly can. Leave some of that behind. He's told essentially to not maximize his profit. This goes against like everything our culture believes in. Entirely unfair. So grain, grapes, olives, these are like the big three staple, three of the big staples in the, of crops in the area. And every time, the people are told, no, 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 leave some. For who? Widows, the orphans, and the immigrants. These three groups of people represent the most marginalized people in that culture and society, right? Women had, had little to no rights at all. They couldn't own land. They couldn't really be business owners. There are a few in the Bible that that you you find out do have some money. But if, if you were a woman and you were married to a man and your husband happened to own some land and he died and you became a widow, you would not take ownership of the land. That land would have to be passed to another male in the family because you don't have the authority to possess that or maintain that, which means if you're a widow, it's going to be a really hard go of it because there's not a lot of people that are going to look after you. You can't really fend for yourself. You're entirely dependent upon others. Think about the, the child. We talked about children last week in, in status, how they had little to no status at all. Well, now imagine that you're a child that doesn't have a family. You're an orphan. You've lost your parents. So your parents have died, whatever. It's gonna be even harder for you. Or when it comes to the immigrants. The immigrants ha- had no rights in this culture and, and in this society. So for all of these people, they're going through some tough times for all three of these groups so moses says leave some of your harvest behind in order to provide for and care for these groups of people that are struggling to get by and from like a business perspective from an owner's perspective from a labor perspective from a wealth perspective this is entirely unfair now watch the next verse verse 20 22 remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is why I command you to do this. So he says, when you harvest grain, leave some behind for the widows, the orphans, the immigrants. When you harvest your olives, leave some behind for the widows, the, sla- the, the orphans, and the immigrants. When you harvest your grapes, leave some behind for the widows, the orphans, and the immigrants. And then he says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Now, what you have to keep in mind about all of this is who is he talking to and why? He's talking to a group of people who are former slaves. These people who have been wandering the desert for 40 years, this group of people who still have not made it yet to the promised land, which is to say that Moses is giving these commands to a people who have not established themselves, to these people who only have with them what they could carry, to these people who are still wandering They haven't moved into the promised land. They haven't started to cultivate. They haven't started to plant. They haven't started to do any of this. This is a people without much of anything. So it's kind of like Moses is saying to the people, like, it's not always going to be like this. It's not always going to be like this. You're not always going to be poor and wandering. You're not always only going to have to eat ramen. You're not always only going to sit on your couch and eat your mac and cheese. Things will eventually move forward and at some point, things will get better and you will become more established and you will build homes and you will have fields and you will have businesses and you will be doing these things and there will be a level of success that comes. There will be a level of comfort that comes and when that day comes, remember where it is you have come from. Remember that you were slaves, and you had to be liberated. Yeah, but that's, that's my field. That's my grain. Those are my olives. That's my vineyard. I've done all the work, and now you're telling me to leave a portion of this behind for those who didn't do anything to earn it or to deserve it. That's not fair. Yeah, but guess what? Your liberation from slavery wasn't fair either grace isn't fair ultimately god god isn't fair and that's the beauty of it these instructions to moses or from moses to the people aren't just commands These aren't just God wanting to be in control of the people. This isn't a government aid program. This is God building into their way of life, building into their system of living a continual, tangible, and physical reminder for them to be grateful for their blessings. This is a practice that's built into their culture that's intended to prevent them from losing their sense of appreciation and their sense of gratitude for what they've been given. The idea of leaving the sheaf behind, leaving the olives, about leaving the grapes behind for others who didn't earn it and didn't deserve it, leaving it for others who may be struggling, leaving it for others who may be in need, it's a way for them to extend grace and mercy and kindness. And the purpose is that as they extend grace and mercy and kindness, that they themselves will be reminded of the grace and mercy and kindness that God extended to them. <coughs> this is so much more than God wanting to be in control, this is about God wanting to reveal and remind them of God's unfair grace and God's unfair goodness to them. I'm grateful for a slushy. <laughs> so in the gospels <clears throat> when Jesus talks about giving a cup of cold water in his name it isn't just about the necessity of the water. It isn't just about providing for somebody in need. It isn't just about the act of giving, like, because that's what a good Christian should do. The act of giving water is to, re- to serve to us as this continual reminder of the blessing that we have already, already received. The act of giving the water is a reminder of the gift that we've had all along. Because the only way that I can give to somebody who's in need, who needs the water, is because I have already received what I need. I already have this, so let me give some to you. And in the giving to you, I am reminded of the blessing of what I have already received. Now, obviously, you could make a parallel to money here, right? You could. You could talk about the tithe and the offering, And that the reason that God initiates the tithe and asks us to give is not because God needs the resources. God doesn't need the resources. He is the provider of the resources. It's not about him needing something for us, from us. It's about him giving something to us. It's a way for us to be reminded of our blessings. God is not taking something from you. He's giving something to you he's giving you the freedom that comes from trusting in god god is giving to you the opportunity to be to be reminded of what you have this mindset of gratitude god is giving to you the opportunity to remind to be reminded that everything we have is a gift you know a couple years ago well Jess and i have always always tithed we that's just been a part of our marriage we trust god with our finances we give, you know, 10%, 12%, something like that, whatever we're at. Um, and so a couple of years ago, we set up our tithe here at the church. It's on, like, reoccurring, you know, so it just <clears throat> automatic withdrawal every other week. It takes some out. And so um, we we trust that God will provide through all that. And we've been through a lot, and, uh, like, money's been tight, and there's been days where we're like, oh, we don't know. But ultimately, like, God has always provided for us, and it's, we're very grateful for that. This past spring, we were getting our our taxes together, you know, that kind of thing, getting ready to do our taxes, and uh, I got my church giving statement, and we opened it up, and I was like, whoa, <laughs> whoa, like, well, that's a chunk of change. I mean, maybe for you it's not a lot, maybe for some of you it's a lot, but for us it was a lot. Like I was like, that's, that's, that's pretty significant, like, and I had that thought, like, Man, we could have done a lot of other things with that money. <laughs> the preacher. Don't judge me. <laughs> We're all in this together. Nobody's perfect here. So I was looking at this this amount of money we'd given, I was like, wow, like, yeah, we could have. We could have done some stuff. Like, we could have like, paid off some debt. We could, have, we could have, like, went on a couple more trips. We could have, like, like, done some more home improvements, that sort of thing. Like, man. And then I was sitting there looking at it. God kind of, like, reminded me about the past year of my life. And I started thinking about all the many things that we were blessed with this past year. Like, we gave this chunk of money, and yet, like, we still paid all our bills. We give this chunk of money away, and yet we still, like, paid off some debt. We still went on some vacations. We still bought presents for birthdays and Christmas. We still went on a couple date nights. We still, we still, we still. We gave this chunk of money to God, and yet we were still able to do whatever. And I thought, how blessed are we? What a gift. What a gift. It's all a gift. And then within me, there was this deep sense of gratitude that because I had given away, it revealed to me the blessings that God had already provided for and taken care of. I think this is part of it, That the giving isn't because God is demanding something from you, but because God wants something for you. And really, this whole idea, especially with Moses' instructions here, it's so much bigger than just money. I, I think this whole thing is about a quality of life. I really believe this whole thing is about a better you and a better world. That when we turned a blind eye to the hurts, to the needs, to the suffering of others, that, that if we don't help eliminate the suffering of others, the misery of others, that we ourselves become miserable. You see, we often seem to live with this idea that if we could just have more, if we could just have bigger, if we could just have better, if we could just have newer, then things would be better. But that's never how things work. The whole point of the book of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, one of the wisest, richest men to have ever lived in the history of the universe, this guy literally had everything he ever wanted. He could pursue anything he wanted to, and he writes this entire book about the realities of this, and what you see is that no matter what he did or no matter what he acquired, he still struggled with being satisfied and fulfilled in his life, which really to me sounds like kind of a miserable way to live. So these people are instructed to leave a portion of their crops for others. But it serves as a way to save them. It serves as a way to save them from their indifference. It serves as a way to save them from their apathy. It serves as a way to ensure that their lives don't shrink down to the place of only being about themselves. Which ultimately is a place of a lack of satisfaction. Because the reality is, our lives are never stagnant. Our lives are never stagnant. Our lives are either contracting and constricting or they're expanding. They're, they're always moving in a direction, whether, whether you feel like it or not, whether you, whether you think your life is pretty ho-hum or not, like, it's always moving in a particular direction. It's either expanding or it's collapsing. It's shrinking in on itself. If it's shrinking in on itself, it's because you're thinking more and more and more just about you and your needs and your needs alone. And like Solomon, you're pursuing all these things that you think will satisfy you but won't ultimately satisfy you. So it's either constricting or it's expanding. It's expanding and you're becoming more and more loving. You're becoming more and more open. You're becoming more and more giving because your focus is not just about you. You become aware and mindful of others. You become mindful and aware of of the needs of the people around you. Uh, and, And as you're becoming more mindful and more aware of these things, this is what brings a sense of satisfaction to you in not just meeting the needs of the self, but in helping to meet the needs of others. So depending on your focus of the self, or others, your life or your quality of life is either contracting or it's expanding. Maybe this is why, like, the idea of the death of self is so important, because when we live for the self, our life gets very small very quick. But when we die to the self so that we can live for others, that life begins to expand. I think this is why Jesus talks a lot about things like giving and serving. Why the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. These things were not supposed to be a burden. Giving and serving isn't about a test of faith. Giving and serving isn't about proving your loyalty or earning something. Giving and serving isn't meant and wasn't designed to be a weight, to be a burden. Giving and serving others is a gift. And it's God's gift to us. It's God's gift to us that we may never lose our sense of gratitude for what we've been given. It's God's gift to us that we may be reminded that all that we have is a gift. It's God's gift to us to keep us from a life of misery. It's God's gift to us that we may be continually reminded of the ever-expanding depths of God's grace. Leave some sheaves behind. Leave some olives. Leave some grapes for the widows and the orphans and the immigrants. And remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is what is told to a nomadic group of former slaves who, had to, who hadn't yet settled in the promised land. So this was a message of hope because things aren't always going to be this way. Things will get better. Things will move forward. But this is also a bit of a warning that when they do that you will not allow your success to steal from you your sense of appreciation and your gratitude. Liberation isn't fair. Grace isn't fair. God isn't fair. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt who needed liberation and grace so that when you become landowners, you will allow your blessings, your overflow to meet the needs of others. It's almost like he's saying, if you don't want your life to be miserable or the way that you maintain and live with a spirit of gratitude, or if you want to live a life that is continually expanding rather than contracting, find those who need what you have. And by giving and serving them, you'll discover that they had what you needed all along. The giving and the serving others allows you to maintain rather than lose your sense of gratitude. And it serves as this constant reminder to us that all of life is a gift.
2: reflecting God's love, receiving God's love through the elements of his body and his blood and reflecting that by hopefully creating a better world. If you're at home today, uh, you can take whatever elements you have at your house for the bread and the wine, the bread and the juice. And for the people in-house, we've got our stations around the room. We also have some prayer partners. And if you're unable to get up, just raise your hand. Someone will bring the communion to you. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here today. Thank you for giving us a time to remember you, to reflect on you. And God, I pray that we can all be more grateful for the life that you gave and for the lives that you have given us. And I pray all of these things in your son's name. Amen.
0: Well, thank you again for spending part of your week with us here at The Foundry Church. If you'd like more information about our church, who we are, what we believe, and what we've got going on, you can check out our website at www.thefoundryc.org. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash or you can email us directly at info at We would love to hear from you with any questions or feedback that you may have. All right, that's all for now. Hope you have an awesome week. We'll see you next time.